If you enjoy these podcasts, check out Enrico Signoretti's reports and blogs on gigaohm.com. They're about data storage and cloud computing, addressing all the topics covered in Voices in Data Storage. Ciao everybody and welcome to a new episode of uh, Voices in Data Storage brought to you by Gigaohm. Uh, I am Enrico Signoretti and today we will talk about Kubernetes. Last week... I was at VMworld and um, and I met a lot of people. Uh, we, we had a lot of conversations around Kubernetes. VMware was presenting uh, um, Project Pacific, which is the uh, some ta- uh, s- somehow the integration between uh, uh, Kubernetes and uh, and VMware. Maybe this time they w- will finally get it right. And um, and a lot of sessions were about com- Kubernetes. So this was the topic of the show from my point of view. Mm. To discuss about this and all the implications that this will bring to enterprises, I invited today Sirish Raghuram, uh, CEO of uh, Platform Mining. Hi, Sirish. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you for having me, Enrico. No, thank you for the time. And uh, Sirish, maybe we can start uh, to introduce you and uh, and your company first. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Enrico, my name is Sarish Raghuram. I um, am co-founder and CEO at Platform9. Platform9 was founded by myself and three other engineers from VMware. Uh, we were there for a long time. We built a lot of the, the products at vSphere and others. And we started the company to make it easy for enterprises to run hybrid cloud environments. So we do that by providing a SaaS control plane, a cloud control plane that uh, is very simple and easy to, to get started with. Um, you just, it's like you go to sign up and you, you can get up and running very quickly. And then you can integrate that with any infrastructure you have, whether that's on-premises infrastructure or public cloud environments. And that control plane takes care of providing services like Kubernetes. So we, you can think of us in a way as a Kubernetes as a service company, uh, but the underlying technology is really this cloud control plane that makes it easy to run hybrid cloud environments. Yes. So uh, from your perspective, uh, uh, you have a lot of customers using uh, your platform uh, at the moment. Okay. And um, uh, what is your opinion about Kubernetes adoption in the in the enterprise? I mean, are we still in a evaluation phase for most of them? Are they really uh, putting their mission-critical application? Is this is, is still something in the middle? You, you know, I feel like um, maybe I could present a, a broader perspective, Enrico. Two years ago, we used to have to explain to customers why Kubernetes makes sense. I think they were generally interested in containers, and we used to have to explain to them why Kubernetes was the right choice versus something like a Docker Swarm or an Apache Mesos. Last year, we used to have to talk about, okay, now you've, people had agreed on Kubernetes and now they were saying, okay, we're just about getting started with Kubernetes. Uh, what are some of the problems we should be aware of? And today, especially I think companies that are more advanced with their digital technologies uh, are already, I think, uh, well on their way in terms of their Kubernetes journey. Uh, and the reason for that is containers as a platform are so attractive 
They are much more resource efficient. They're truly portable across cloud environments. And then from a developer and DevOps team perspective, containers are a significant improvement versus trying to use virtual machines and packaging applications using you know, all the config management tools, right? So for all these reasons, I think this is really happening and it's happening now. And so it's actually a really interesting time in the market where enterprises are, I think, relatively early in the journey in that they're not running more than 10, 20% of their workloads on containers and Kubernetes, but they're directionally committed to going down that path. And five years from now, a lot of them want to be running a significant portion of their workloads on Kubernetes. Yeah, so uh, the preview of Project Pacific that we we saw at uh, VMware is trying to bring in together legacy, uh, if I can call them legacy, I mean, virtual machines and uh, and uh, containers in the same environment. And you, uh, and you are able to manage them uh, uh, as uh, single applications, okay? Uh, do you think this is the right way to manage Kubernetes in their enterprise, or, or even do you think that enterprises wanted to do this uh, uh, in this way? Yeah, so so great question, Enrico. Um, the, the first thing I want to point out is that this is not a new capability. Uh, in the open source Kubernetes world, uh, there have been projects like KubeWord that have effectively allowed you to do this for over a year now. And so this is not necessarily a new uh, innovation, uh, but what is new is that I think VMware has tried to retrofit Kubernetes onto the vSphere platform. And so why does this make sense? Well, the, the theory is that, look, it'll be much easier for companies that have existing workloads to be able to start to experience the Kubernetes API and the Kubernetes workflow uh, using those existing VMs. Uh, and I think that for certain types of applications, that may be true. Uh, but given that this has already been out there in the open source community, we have some experience of seeing customers actually trying to use this. And what we've seen is that, look, fundamentally, Kubernetes is a pretty different way of thinking about packaging your applications. And, um, and so the idea of taking existing applications, not really modifying them, and just kind of overlaying Kubernetes on top of them. It sounds appealing in, in theory, but in practice, you run into a number of limitations where you wonder at the end of it, is it really worth it? Uh, or should Kubernetes really be adopted uh, by using adopting you know, the, the true microservices, cloud-native design practices? So I think it'll have limited you know, uh, real-world usage. I think most companies that are serious about Kubernetes are actually looking to use Kubernetes in its native manner, and by that I mean truly using microservices and truly using uh, the application partitioning concepts that microservices entail. Do, do you also think that uh, this kind of approach could be uh, a sort of lock-in? I mean, uh, you, you lose some of the uh, application portability that uh, Kubernetes provides if you mix virtual machines with, uh, with, uh, with containers. Somehow you limit your options. You absolutely limit your options. I mean, uh, there's only going to be one company which is supporting Pacific, right? Um, it's going to be VMware. There isn't going to be any innovation or contributions from the rest of the community. So yes, the, without question, there's going to be lock-in. But there's, I think, Enrico, a few more challenges with this approach, okay? Um, I think one of the challenges people VMware sees is if con companies adopt containers and Kubernetes, 
Uh, I saw this post on Twitter recently from a gentleman at Nike who said, hey, if you're using containers and Kubernetes and our unit of abstraction of cloud is a Kubernetes cluster, then tell me, why can't I run a Kubernetes cluster on bare metal? And and by, by that, he means like a standard Linux environment and get more performance efficiency, but also simplify the stack, right? So I don't need to run VMs and then run containers on top of VMs and now need to have the operational complexity of supporting both the VM stack and the container stack. So there's a cost aspect, there's a complexity aspect, and then there's a innovation aspect. So let's talk about all three. From a cost point of view, you, clearly you're going to be further ahead if you can just run containers on bare metal. We have a lot of our customers who sometimes start with VMs, but eventually they want to go and just run containers on the hardware. Uh, or in the public cloud on the public cloud bare metal environments, right? So cost-wise, that's clearly the cheapest option. Let's talk about operational complexity. In operational complexity, now you're talking about training your, your operational team to support VMware and all of the set of tools that that entails, like, you know, vSphere, there's maybe vRealize, maybe uh, NSX for networking, there's SRM for DR, uh, right? There's all this, you know, old world way of doing infrastructure and support and operations around infrastructure. But now, in addition to that, because there's some portion of your applications that are also running on Kubernetes, you also have to learn to support all of these things in the cloud native way. So you need to figure out how to support, uh, you know, backup and DR for containerized workloads, uh, which are running, uh, you know, in in these, you know, on these, uh, you know. See this native uh, pods, and so I think the operational complexity, the range of technologies that operators need to learn and support, goes up significantly. Uh, the kinds of integrations, right? I mean, just imagine the the complexity of trying to integrate networking. And now you bring in the public cloud. Most enterprises are are going to be hybrid, and they're going to have at least two or three environments. And the combined complexity, I think, goes up significantly because. It makes no sense to be using Pacific on the public cloud. I mean, if you think about using some Amazon and some Azure and some on-prem with VMware, uh, you're not going to run Pacific on Amazon. You're not going to run Pacific on uh, Azure uh, for cost reasons and complexity reasons because you can just run containers on those platforms natively and, and manage it with Kubernetes. So cost-wise, it's much higher. Operational complexity-wise, I think it's significantly higher. And then you think about the innovation, right? When a new version of Kubernetes comes out uh, in the open source community, how long will it be before VMware uh, supports that version of Kubernetes on vSphere? Uh, I think the challenge is new patches come out all the time, new security vulnerabilities come out all the time, but also new versions of Kubernetes come out every three months. And VMware historically has not updated ESXi at that kind of velocity, right? And a portion of the specific stack runs on ESXi. And so I think there's a lot of complexity to this model. Uh, and I think at the end of it, when you consider all of this, I think a customer would probably look back and say, is it really worth it? And should I just simplify my stack and have like a legacy environment, which is running VMs? And I use the word legacy badly. It can be a, it can be a well-designed application, but... Uh, what what they mean is a traditional monolithic architecture which is running in VMs and a next generation microservices architecture which is running on containers and they just think of these as two different things.
One of the advantages uh, um, that uh, VMware highlighted about Project Pacific is the fact that you can improve the collaboration between uh, uh, infrastructure teams and DevOps team. I mean, this is one of the hardest things that you can have in uh, every uh, organizations now, putting together these two teams. Uh, what's your opinion on this? I think that that gap that VMware talks about is very real. And um, there is def definitely a divide between operators and developers. And I think that they, uh, in particular, I think in the VMware world, that gap is pretty pronounced. If you think about like the most organizations that are running VMware and you think about the vSphere operations team, their world and their challenges and their concerns look very different than I think the, the world of the DevOps team or the developer team in, uh, in that organization. And so Gartner, for example, uh, talks about this, this new uh, emerging um, world where we've seen this as well, where there's sometimes new operations teams that the development teams spin out uh, from the development organization or from the DevOps organization to become the new cloud ops layer because of how 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 different uh, the developer mindset today is versus the VMware operator mindset. So I think that anything that VMware is trying to do to bridge that divide is a good thing. I think because that gap is real and I think it's holding enterprises back in terms of being able to be more efficient and being more agile. However, the question is, uh, is specific the right way to address that, that gap? Because for the reasons that I outlined before, the cost, the operational complexity, and the innovation aspect, while the effort is, I mean, the, the pain point is real, the question that arises is, uh, is this the right approach to, to address that problem? Uh, and I think the jury is out on that because I think a lot of these organizations that are really serious about containers will want a more pure, uh, non-locked-in, non not VMware-specific version of Kubernetes. The other one, uh, Enrico, that's worth talking about is, if you think about what developers want, uh, they want not just Kubernetes, but they want this broader range of application services, like Prometheus for monitoring, Istio as a service mesh, and uh, Jaeger for tracing, Harbor for the highly available container registry. So Kubernetes is like, a new operating system kernel for you know the cloud native world, and you need these surrounding services to really make that uh, a friendly operating system to build applications on top of. And it, for example, in VMware's uh, announcements, there was no mention of these things because the focus is all on trying to retrofit Kubernetes into vSphere. So again, you go look at from a developer point of view, compared to what they can get with open source or alternatives like Platform 9, uh, they don't really get these broader range of services that I think they, they all care about. Because ultimately, to be able to build modern containerized applications, you, you need Kubernetes, but you need these additional services as well. And that seems to be lacking in, in VMware solutions. So, so I think for all those reasons, they're definitely trying to solve the right problem. The approach is questionable. I see. But, uh, and again, uh, you're probably right. I mean, trying to mix uh, all these things and, uh, uh, you know, somehow reinventing the wheel could, could be very dangerous because, uh, as you said, there are several tools and these guys coming from, uh, from the open source world 
they are so used to them. And then if they, you know, start to work with uh, this VMware environment, it becomes uh, very, very hard for them to, you know, enjoy the platform and, and be very productive with it. So to your point, probably it, it will increase the costs uh, sometimes dramatically. And, uh, but, but from, uh, from another perspective, okay, so uh, you, you have a totally different approach to this kind of problem. Uh, I know your, your history. I know how you, uh, you deploy your product. Okay, how can an enterprise take advantage of uh, Platform 9 services to not uh, uh, incur in this kind of issues? Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to talk about maybe uh, two kinds of customers, uh, both both of VMware customers and are using Platform 9. They have been in production for more than a year now. Uh, the first one is S&P Global, which is a, the world's leading uh, you know, financial technology ratings uh, and intelligence company. And they're a pretty large VMware customer. They're a Fortune 500 based in New York City in Manhattan. And their CIO had a vision of saying, I want to modernize my organization's digital platform capabilities, and I want to delight my development teams with a modern uh, development experience and giving them the latest and greatest capabilities. But they had an existing VMware investment, and they chose not to, to, to disturb that. They said, look, the VMware environments work. We've been quite happy with VMware as a virtualization technology. But let's talk about how we're going to deliver a great development experience on top of that. So what we've done there is, uh, so S&P Global has essentially done both an IaaS stack, infrastructure as a service stack, with uh, using our managed open stack product, which runs on top of VMware. So existing applications that are running using VMs are uh, you know, available in a catalog, will self-service with a fully automated experience. And they've also rolled out managed Kubernetes. So, and, and by rolling out an integrated cloud plane, control plane, which includes both VM-based IaaS and container-based uh, you know, Kubernetes as a service, and a rich catalog of applications like Prometheus and Istio and Jaeger and Harbor and Cassandra and Kafka and Hadoop and Spark, and you know, the list goes on and on. They've enabled the full catalog of, of development capabilities that their development teams are hungry for. And that works both on-prem on VMware and across hybrid clouds like Amazon uh, and other clouds that they may use in the future. So that's, I think, one, one classic example of how I think a large enterprise organization that has an existing investment in v- VMware can leverage that while still uh, driving value to the business. Another example, and I'm not going to name this customer because of what they did, but um, they uh, they actually ch- said, "Listen, we th- they actually deployed our Kubernetes as a service solution completely independent of their existing VMware environment. They also had an existing OpenStack environment, and they said, "Look, this is a critical piece for us. We've had a lot of challenges with our OpenStack layer uh, historically. It's been too complex to run, and our VMware stack is interesting, but we don't really li- like we realize." And we want to be uh, delivering a new stack. We want to build a whole new stack and see if we can standardize on that, but we want to prove it out first. So they actually went and deployed a brand new Kubernetes as a service stack just on standard Linux, so on bare metal effectively. And so containers are running not on VMs, but containers are running on Linux on physical hardware. That was about a year ago. 
and now they've been very very happy with uh, the the experience and the fact that we deliver this as a SaaS service means we we our, our software as a service platform is taking care of the deployment and monitoring and troubleshooting of kubernetes and in addition to kubernetes now they're starting to consume capabilities like prometheus capabilities like istio and they've been they've now chosen that this stack will be standardized and so they they're moving everything from the vmware environments and their openstack environments they're actually transforming them into containers and then moving them into this whole new kubernetes as a service platform so they're taking a more aggressive approach where they're forcing modernization uh, by keeping the Kubernetes stack uh, very clean uh, and very aligned with upstream Kubernetes. So they're not running Kubernetes on VMs. They're not running um, uh, Kubernetes in you know, any kind of proprietary manner. They're using upstream Kubernetes that we support and all the surrounding services. And they're forcing a migration of all of the existing workloads so they're pretty aggressive. And we've seen other companies uh, that have done this successfully uh, where they've been able to modernize uh, those application stacks in, and bring them into the containerized world. So two different approaches. I would generally say that it comes down to the nature of applications. If you have very long-lived applications, 30, 40 years old, then you may want to take the SMP global approach where uh, you, you kind of keep, keep some layers unchanged. But if you're willing to modernize more aggressively, then I would highly recommend the second approach. So it really is a choice that customers have in terms of how they choose to, to deploy and, and use Kubernetes. I have a couple of questions then. One is you talk about uh, you know very large companies in the end with a complex, very complex environment, OpenStack, VMware, and now Kubernetes. So is uh, this kind of solution uh, good only for this very large organization or do we also serve small organization as well. We have a number of customers who are much smaller than that, uh, Enrico, as you know. They, um, we, you know uh, one, one company that comes to mind is a European company called EasyFlex, uh, which is much smaller, but wanted to be able to run infrastructure within Europe. And they're using our Kubernetes as a service platform on top of that existing environment. So in fact, in many ways, you could say that our, the fact that our service is available as a SaaS service means that smaller organizations, uh, they, they, they're more resource constrained often. The operations teams uh, have more to do and they don't have a large team. And uh, we can help augment them effectively by uh, bringing our management control plane, um, you know, effectively serves as a way of augmenting the capabilities of the operations team in small organizations. So it's not necessarily just for large organizations. So yes, I totally understand. So you solve uh, the the all the issues that uh, come with the Kubernetes around uh, Kubernetes uh, first deployment and management. Okay, and it is the same problem for small and large organization at the end of the day. But uh, but actually uh, now. It's becoming pretty common. I mean, also large uh, service providers like Google offer similar services. What are the differentiators of Platform 9 when I compare it with, uh, you know, the, the Googles of this world? The predominant differentiators are Google's uh, Kubernetes service, uh, GKE, runs in the Google Cloud Platform. And uh, many, many companies don't want to be locked into a single cloud provider. 
They may have existing on-prem environments that they also want to use, or they may want to have a hybrid strategy or a multi-cloud strategy across uh, Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud, and Azure. And for those companies, uh, what they end up having to do today is they end up having to run Kubernetes by themselves. And they end up trying to hire an in-house team, a platform team, uh, to, to deploy and run Kubernetes. Now, the challenge is that Kubernetes is pretty complex, and you need a very specialized talent to be able to run Kubernetes. But also, deploying Kubernetes is actually the easy part. Uh, it's the ongoing troubleshooting and monitoring and upgrades and resolving cluster downtime when etcd clusters fail, those are where you know you end up really having problems. And most organizations, uh, the they either don't want to deal with that, and or they want, uh, you know, uh, to they they have the engineers that can deal with that, but those engineers are the most valuable engineers, and they want to kind of let them do higher order work uh, that is unique to their business. So they want something like a Google Cloud service. They want something like a GKE but they want it to be able to run on-prem or across hybrid and multi-cloud environments. And that is what we do, right? And in fact, there's nobody else that does what we do uh, in terms of providing a service, a Kubernetes as a service platform that runs in a hybrid and multi-cloud manner. Yeah, so at the end of the day, you you provide on-prem plus multi-cloud kind of environment. You you can deploy your your solution on different uh, environments. And uh, this make uh, the life easier for for your customer. This is the real differentiator, right? That's correct. So, Sirish, I think we we got a, a nice overview about uh, uh, what is happening uh, uh, right now in the Kubernetes uh, infrastructure and what your company does. But actually, I'm pretty curious to know if you have uh, an idea on uh, uh, where uh, Kubernetes is adding. I mean, the development. Uh, what we can expect from this uh, huge community in the next, uh, I don't know, one year, two years? It's it's an exciting it's an exciting time in the space, uh, Enrico, because I felt like in the early years, uh, a lot of time was actually spent in talking about Swarm versus Mesos versus Kubernetes, and now I think you know all of that is behind us, and you know it's remarkable that this open source project has uh, gotten to be so so powerful and has so much mindshare that VMware had to pretty much make it center stage in their annual conference, right? I mean, that speaks volumes about the traction that I think Kubernetes is having. I think it's exciting because what's happening now is we're going to a world where, you know, historically people used to talk about the move to the cloud, right? As in lifting and shifting workloads and thinking of the cloud as a destination. And I think Kubernetes has been the key technology that has really changed that. And where we're not talking about move to the cloud as much as if you're using cloud native, if you're running on Kubernetes clusters and you're using the Kubernetes API, it really does not matter whether you're using on-prem environments or public or hybrid or multi-cloud environments. And so I think the future of Kubernetes is going to be, I think there's two really big areas of innovation. Uh, The first one we've talked about already in terms of this range of services around Kubernetes. So Today, I think companies that are trying to run Kubernetes end up becoming the systems integrators of all these technologies. And I think they need there needs to be a way by which it's easier for them. And the cloud providers aren't going to do that because the cloud providers all have their own proprietary version 
of these technologies. So I think that's an area where the community is investing in. The second one, I think, is Kubernetes is now effectively leveling the the playing field between on-prem and hybrid and public cloud and multi-cloud environments. And so I think we're finally getting into, I don't know, Enrico, if you remember the words grid computing many, many, many years ago. Yeah, I remember that. Kubernetes is actually going to enable a computing grid where people can consume cloud capacity with the same consistent experience uh, and being able to build applications to that to that world while actually being able to consume capacity more dynamically and as a commodity. So I think this is not going to happen in a year, but I think in the next three to five years, Kubernetes is absolutely going to help deliver a cloud computing grid. And I think that is really powerful because it's going to significantly make organizations much more efficient uh, and lower the cost of computing and therefore help bring more innovation using computing uh, to the to the world. Now, I see your point. My only concern is about uh, data storage. I mean, uh, uh, it is much easier to move uh, compute resources and application, but data uh, uh, will be the you know always the difficult part. So we will. We will see what uh, what happens. But uh, I think it's time to wrap up this episode. It was a very nice conversation. And uh, I, w- I would like to, to give uh, our listeners a couple of links. So where we can find you on the Twitters if they want to uh, keep the conversation going, for example, and uh, uh, the website for Platform 9. Yeah, so Platform 9 is at platform9.com. That's platform and the number 9.com. And we're on Twitter at Platform9Sys. Uh, tweet to us there, or you can tweet to me personally at Suresh Raghuram uh, on Twitter. Uh, I, I read both, so I'm happy to, to continue the conversation there. And Enrico, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for, uh, for spending the time and talking about this uh, you know, very, very interesting uh, topic. Um, bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in Data Storage, please check out the other ones. Unstructured data management is the focus of a report Enrico wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about how data storage is evolving in the cloud era, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.